0: Let's turn once again, one last time, to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We're at the end of our series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We've been, we've been talking about the, the outcome of the Spirit's presence in, in the lives of believers. Believers. And one of the ways the Spirit comes to, to change us in order to produce Jesus-likeness in our lives is, is to work in us the grace of self-control. That's what we will be thinking about together. Before I read our text again, let's briefly pray. Gracious Father, as your word is read and preached, we, we humbly ask that it would Uh, that it would penetrate into our minds and our hearts and bring glory to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Self-control. Uh, Proverbs 25 verse 28 says that a man without self-control is, is like a city broken into without walls. Uh, so, so helpless and, and utterly defenseless. person without self-control is uh, open season for the devil and temptation. Edmund Hillary uh, some of you might know that name, Edmund Hillary, as a famous uh, mountain climber, first to conquer Mount Everest. Uh, he was asked about his, uh, his love for, for mountain climbing, and he famously said, it, it is not the mountain we conquer, it is ourselves. It's a striking statement, I think, if you reflect upon it. It is not the mountain we conquer. It is ourselves. Self-control, self-mastery, bringing ourselves under control. Peter the Great of Russia said, I have been able to conquer an entire empire, but I have been unable to conquer myself. You notice the contrast in Galatians 5 between the works of the flesh, and and the fruit of the Spirit. As Paul details some of the works of the flesh in this chapter, he mentions uh, sexual immorality and and sensuality and and divisions and and, uh, backbiting and conceit and envy and all kinds of sins that are connected to a lack of self-control. Uh, and I think it's right to say that self control applies to every area of life. Uh, our entertainment, uh, binging on Netflix, uh, the time that we spend on our smartphones, uh, sports, video games, on and on and on we could go. This issue of self control applies to every area. Of our lives, and it's about it's about controlling one's life so that it is harnessed, it is yoked to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. How about how about anger? Let's just let's let's go there for a second. Ephesians 4 be angry and, and and do not sin, Paul says. There are certain things that ought to make us angry. In fact, there are certain things that if you are not angry about them, there's something wrong with you. Injustice ought to make us angry. The fact that a pedophile like Larry Nassar could get away with abusing so many young girls for so long ought to infuriate us. The fact that um, millions of helpless babies have been murdered in our country, ought to make us angry. Be angry and do not sin. That's the part that's hard for us as, as sinners because anger is a hard emotion for us to control. Anger has been called the, the gunpowder of the human soul. And it's, it's hard to control an explosion, isn't it? I uh, watched a video a few weeks ago of some, some guys having fun together, and uh, they had a 200-pound anvil. They bore out a hole in the bottom, and they filled it with gunpowder and stuck a fuse in it and lit the fuse. Have you ever seen this before? This 200-pound anvil launched, I don't know, 100 feet up into the air and just destroyed uh, the ground that it landed upon. And it wasn't in that video, but they spoke about doing that another time and the anvil hit a tree and actually just split the tree right in half. You know, sometimes our, uh, sometimes our explosions of anger can be a bit like that. We, we blow up when we get angry. Maybe we can, we can think about times where you've, you've wanted to talk to someone, someone you're close to, you, you've been upset with them, and you try to talk to them, you you want to have the conversation, you want to see the conversation go a certain way, but once you enter into the discussion, it's it's very difficult, isn't it, to keep that conversation controlled and going in the direction that you want it to, because it's so easy for us to fly off the handle, to lose self-control, to let our emotions go unchecked. The issue of self-control applies to every area of life. And I know, you know, some people may, may hear this and think, this this smells like legalism. This sounds like legalism. This is just another way of, of giving a list of, of things to do and things not to do. Here's a, here's a strict checklist of things you need to make sure you do and things you need to be sure you Avoid, But my friends, this is not legalism. This is the Apostle Paul talking about how God sends the Holy Spirit into the lives of believing men and women in order to reduplicate the moral glory of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways, one of the marks of that work of grace is the grace of self-control. The Greek word, is enkrateia. It comes from the root krat, and it means it means power or lordship. So, self-control is exercising power or lordship over one's self. Self-mastery in all kinds of areas. It and and it is it is it is a it is a control that a believer. I'm more and more convinced of this. A control that a believer must learn, to exercise in their life or their lives. Their life is always going to be out of sorts, erratic, uncontrolled. There will be no no boundaries to self-expression, self-seeking and self-gratification. Okay, so let's let's think about this spirit-generated grace of self-control together. And I want to ask and try to answer three questions. Okay, the first question is this. What does self-control involve? I think there's one key word here. Self-control must involve discipline. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul applies the analogy of sports to to explain and illustrate the kind of discipline we ought to have in our Christian lives? In, In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Verses 24 and 26, Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Run with discipline. Run with focused discipline. -discipline. Self-discipline. My my brother-in-law, Luke, uh, wrestled in high school and he was... He was, a, he was a pretty accomplished wrestler. He made it to states a, a couple of times, maybe a few times. I don't remember. But he was very disciplined in uh, his sport. You know, during the season, he would, he would train every day. And I think that was actually the easy part. I think the hard part was the way that he had to be self-controlled in his diet. Uh, Luke wanted to wrestle within a certain weight class. And so he had to monitor the, the amount of liquids he consumed. And he had to pass up on, well, for some of us, this might not be a struggle. But for Luke, he had to pass up on mac and cheese and string cheese and, and, uh, and mom's treats. Those were his favorite foods. And he had to exercise an incredible amount of discipline in order to be successful in his sport. Of course, the kind of self-control that we're talking about here is not reducible to, you know, passing on some treats. Um, You know, the the secular world, as it thinks about the topic of self-control, might say to us, here's the message. You know, the power and the ability resides within you. You can will and do whatever you want to will and do. All you need to do is tap into that inner strength. Actually, the message of Christianity is just the opposite. The message of Christianity utterly rejects that way of thinking about self-control because the message of Christianity is first and foremost that we are sinners by nature outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't control our sin. Sin controls us. Paul speaks about carrying out the desires of the flesh and Uh, living according to the desires of the fallen human mind in in Ephesians chapter 2 we live in the passions of the flesh that's the life we live outside of Jesus Christ and so one of the consequences of the fall is that our lives well what does what does the apostle Paul say and is it second Timothy chapter 3 when he 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 warns Timothy that these last days Now, I don't want to get into end times discussion, but these last days, I hope you understand, according to the New Testament, is not a future time. According to the New Testament, these last days is the time period between the ascension and outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Jesus Christ. We are living in these in the last days according to the New Testament. And Paul says, what, what will these last days be characterized by? He says, they will be marked by a lack of self-control. So this, is, this isn't a self-help message about controlling our lives, saying, you can do this, you can, you can be the master of your life. Actually, the Christian message is, is the very opposite. You cannot do this. (laughs) And that even as a Christian, you remain utterly dependent upon God for everything that you do. And so this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is Spirit-generated fruit, which God then calls us to work out as He works in us, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So even as Christians... As we think about self-control, we need to remember we are utterly and completely dependent and reliant upon the Lord. So when Paul tells us to exercise discipline or self-control as, as, a, as a mark, as an indicator of the indwelling uh, of the Spirit of Christ, he, he doesn't mean you then go off as a self-reliant man or woman. That is so held in high esteem in our culture today. Instead, self discipline as a mark of Christian discipleship is utterly reliant upon God to work in us as we make every effort to bring our lives under control. Self control is a spirit reliant, Christ given grace. Now, as we think about self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, here's the second question I I want to ask. What what are some areas that we need to exercise self-control? I I know I said a moment ago, this applies to every area of life, but let me identify, I think, three important areas that we need to be mindful of. First of all, we need to, by the grace of God, exercise self-control in the area of our thought life. Paul speaks about being sober minded. Isn't isn't that an interesting way of speaking? Uh, What happens to a person who has had too much to drink? They they can't think straight. Their reason and their their judgment becomes cloudy and unreliable. They begin to act erratically. And Paul says we need to be sober minded. Unpacking that a a little bit more, though, in, in the New Testament. I think we we need to say that God's word teaches us to fix our minds, to think on certain things, and to refuse thinking about other things. Remember what Paul says in in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Whatever he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think think about these things Paul is making demands on our thought life you know our, our tendency I think even even as Christians is for our thoughts to run afoul to for our for our thinking to to go astray and to not be restrained and governed by God's word and we can then go on to, to dwell on all kinds of wrong things. We can, we can meander and, and wander off into thinking about things that are not true or praiseworthy or honorable or pure. And Paul, Paul is reminding us there that, that discipleship, following Jesus, involves, and, and I think I think this is often an area that we we don't give right attention, enough attention to. An aspect of discipleship is learning to discipline our minds. Learning to discipline our thinking, to think a different way, to think in line with God's word. Another way of coming at this, in, in Colossians, Paul tells Christians to set your minds on the things above and and not on the things of this earth. You see, we we live in a world filled with many powerful attractions, tangible attractions, seductive attractions, social attractions, and it would be so easy for us to lose control of our thoughts and to begin to dwell on those things. And we need to understand if that's where we go, and then my friends, it's, it's not long after that our, that our bodies, our actions will then also be given over to those things. We'll lose control of our lives. And so we need to learn to fix our thoughts on things above where Christ is. That's the first area. second area we need to be self-controlled is, uh, is in our speech. You know what James does in James 2? He he likens the tongue to to fire. A whole forest, he says, is set ablaze by a small flame. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and animal can be tamed, James says. You can take any creature in this world and with enough work, bring that animal under submission. And yet James says, the human tongue uh, cannot be tamed. It is a world of unrighteousness, restless evil, full of deadly poison. From the mouth comes blessing and cursing. Okay, what's, what's James saying? James is saying we all have a, a very serious speech problem. The problem is our tongues can wreak catastrophic damage. And we know that. We we, we know that because we ourselves have have been the the objects of hurtful speech. You know, we, we say that silly ditty, sticks and stones can break my bones, but... Words can't do a thing. Is that how it goes? I think that's how it goes. Um, it's garbage. I mean, it's it's just not true. The words people speak can can deliver more lasting harm and hurt than sticks or stones. You know, to our own shame, too. We're not just the the recipients of hurtful speech, but to our own shame, we ourselves have spoken hurtful words self-centered words words intended to do harm and if we were honest with our own hearts words spoken from a heart full of hatred and anger and so James is saying watch out an entire forest can be set ablaze by this small fire remember the recent forest fires in California hundreds and hundreds of acres just desolated wiped out With what started as a small fire, a small flame. And so we need to bring our words under control. And James mentions at least two main ways we can can do this. Or two helps at least in pursuing this. He highlights the first in chapter 2 verse 9 where he basically says, we need to think about who other people are. We need to reckon with that fact. He says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? When we speak ill of another, when we curse others with our tongues, we are talking about someone made in the image and likeness of God. We're not talking about a random person. set of atoms we're not talking about some some creature that came into existence through mindless blind evolutionary processes over millions and millions of years we are talking about the handiwork of God we we are talking about someone created with inherent dignity and with the tongue that we use to bless our father we use that same tongue to curse those Who are made in his image. That's, James says, we need to reckon with that, what we're really doing when we speak ill of others. And then, secondly, to bring our tongue under control, we need to, I think we need to think about the real hurt and damage our words can can bring. Do do we stop and, and think before we speak? What what hurt may I cause if I say this? What pain might I cause if I just blurt this out and let my tongue run loose? Of course, there are times we need to speak uh, clearly, directly, plainly, confrontationally with others. But I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about all of the other times when we allow our tongues free reign. And, you know, as somebody, um, somebody has responsibility to talk in front of you a lot and to talk to you personally a lot, I'm preaching first and foremost to myself here. You know, so often we, we speak, again, if we, I think if we search our hearts, so often we speak with nothing but our own self-interest in view. But the concern, you see, what, what, what's Paul saying is an implication of this idea of self-control. The concern of a spirit-indwelled Christian will increasingly be What will please my master? What will will most uh, encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? What will build up the body of Christ? What will bring glory to my Savior? I think as a a set of questions we need to always be asking ourselves is, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Uh, Here's a third area I think we need to, to practice self-control in we need to practice self-control bodily we need to practice self-control in what we do with our bodies so often when the bible speaks about this it has sexual overtones Uh, we we read i think one of the great illustrations of that in in genesis 39 with the story of joseph and potiphar's wife as she, as she sought to seduce him and, and lie with him. Do you remember what, what Joseph said along the way? He said, how can I sin in such a way? How can I sin against God? Now notice that. I think we need to reckon with what Joseph is doing there. How does, how does Joseph control himself? How does Joseph keep himself under control? What, what is it that constrains Joseph in that situation? It's his relationship with God. It is the covenant-keeping God of grace who has claimed Joseph for himself that restrains Joseph in the hour of temptation. How could I do such a thing and sin against God? Yeah, and this kind of thinking runs, I think, throughout the Bible. And in fact, in the New Testament, it, it intensifies. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to believers. The Corinthian believers, you know, the Corinthians were a mess. And, and Paul tells them that you are members of Christ. You are, you are so intimately related and connected to Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, that what you do in your bodies, you do in union with Jesus Christ. He's talking about an issue here as he's trying to counsel the Corinthians where visiting a prostitute was more than likely something that some of these Corinthian believers regularly did in their former lives. Uh, Just earlier in verses 9 through 11 in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of sins and he says to the Corinthians, such were some of you and it's likely the case that many of these Corinthian believers in their former lives were regularly visiting prostitutes. And Paul wants them to understand why they can no longer live that way. Why they can no longer live in the way they used to. You can't unite yourself to a prostitute. And Paul understands, though, that you know, sometimes old sins, when a person is converted, don't just disappear. Disappear. That old sinful patterns don't always just vanish like that. And, and so, Paul wants them to understand why they can no longer live like that. And he, and he says, in essence, I think it's shocking when, we, when you really reckon with what Paul is saying. Paul says, when you go to visit a prostitute, or translate that, when you look at pornography, you can't leave Jesus at the door and then pick him up on your way back out. You take Jesus with you. Now you. You look at pornography. Or you visit a prostitute. As a member of Christ. Paul is saying. You, you, you do those sins. In union with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. To, to the Corinthian believers. Because you belong to Jesus. So if you visit a prostitute. You, you go and union with Christ. yeah, that's that's edgy stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's, Paul, it's in your face what Paul is saying, but his point is that, that your union with Jesus Christ is now such a dominating reality that it shapes your entire life, including your moral life and what you do with your body. It's raising the question, how, how can you go on sinning that way in light of who you are? How can you go on doing those things as a member of Christ? Because when you sin, you sin in union with Christ. Now, I don't suspect that any of us are, and I I hope you don't think that this is something I was alleging, that people are going and visiting uh, temple prostitutes. But, you know, we'd be naive if we didn't think that there were people in a group like this who are caught up in hidden sexual sin. And you know what Paul is saying, listen to it, you know, pornography, uh, sleeping around, hooking up. What is Paul saying to, to you, believer, in that situation? He's saying, realize that when you sin, when you go and you do those things, you do so in Christ. You, you can't say to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you stay over here, and I'm going to go do this for a little while, and then I'll come back to you when I'm all finished. You know, it, it exposes, doesn't it, the horror of sin for the Christian. The horror of sin for someone who is in union and communion with Jesus Christ. What's Paul's conclusion from that? Because you are a member of Christ, glorify God with your body. In other words, exercise self-control in what you do with your bodies. That's Paul's conclusion. Uh, Like Joseph, we ought to say, how can I sin against God who has made me his in the gospel? You see, it's not, it's, it, the, the motive here, it's not merely a fear of consequences. What, what if people find out? What if word gets out to others? I think about Joseph for a second. Why didn't, why didn't Joseph just indulge in momentary self-indulgence? He's Not near his, his family? Word wouldn't get back to, to relatives? He's living among, amongst a bunch of pagans. His life has been hard. Doesn't, doesn't Joseph deserve a moment of pleasure? Uh, you see, for Joseph, consequences weren't a motive. Nor should our motive primarily be how, it, how our actions will affect our loved ones. This is as right and true as, as that is for the Christian the constraining reality for what we do in our bodies is the Lord Himself. And what He has done for us in the Gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in making us His. So, beloved, I think we need to remind ourselves today, we we live in a culture where there there is no self-constraint. In fact, sinful self-expression of Desire is seen as one of the greatest moral goods. And when you find yourselves tempted and and pressured at times by by the world and by your own sinful flesh, what's what's going to keep you? What's what's going to restrain you? Maybe say, ah, Jared, you know, I'm I'm made of tough stuff. I'm made of steel. I can take it. No, you can't. None of us can. And if that's your way of thinking about temptation, my friends, you're already done for. The ship is already sinking. The only thing that will keep you is knowing that you belong to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. And so you say with the Apostle Paul, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You don't belong to this world or the things of this world. You are a member of Christ. Here's the third question How important is the discipline of self control? I think the answer, I hope the answer is obvious by now. Self control is crucial for living the Christian life. It's a spiritual discipline. Perhaps the spiritual discipline. We speak about uh, the means of grace in our church. The ministry of the word and the sacraments and and prayer and the life of the congregation as as means which God gives to his church and through which he works to pour out blessing upon his people and to nourish and grow them in Christ. But my friends, if if we don't, exercise self-control and make that a priority in our lives do not avail ourselves of the means of grace we, we will not grow in our christian walks some of you maybe have read uh, the book by uh, kent hughes the disciplines of uh, of a godly man and you know he's he's writing to men here so i'm not trying to leave the ladies out at all but in that book he takes the spiritual discipline of self-control And he applies it to almost every area of the Christian life. So he speaks about discipline. And here's a list of the table of contents. The discipline of marriage. The discipline of purity. The discipline of fatherhood. And friendship. And and thinking. And devotional life. And prayer. And worship. And integrity. And speech. And work. And church. And giving. And witness. And on and on it goes. You see what Kent Hughes is getting at. He's showing you how... You've got to bring your life under gospel disciplines or none of these things are are ever going to happen. And the reality is that you will not grow in the Christian life unless you learn and practice the spirit-generated grace of self-control. Go back a little bit with me to the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president of the united states and you remember nancy reagan was famous for a slogan in the war on drugs anybody remember what it is just say no just say no you know self control in the christian life involves saying no but it's not just saying no that's a fine piece of secular advice but saying no in the Christian life is different because we, we, the problem is with the word just. We don't just say no. We say no for certain reasons. Right? Who, who do you want to receive the glory in your life? Is it you or the Lord Jesus? We don't, we don't just say no. We say no for Jesus' sake. We say no with gospel motivations. We say no to certain things so that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted and, and glorified in our lives. About you? But I, I want to live a self-controlled life, not for legalistic reasons, but because I believe that this is what Jesus wants for my life and for your life. He sent the Spirit to produce it. My friends, it's going to require discipline and effort and hard work on our part, but but not self-control for its own sake, not self-control so that we can pat ourselves on the back and compare ourselves with others, but self-control for the sake of honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who shed His blood to make us His. We've taken a... I think 10 weeks, to look at these two verses detailing the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to wrap up by asking a question that I asked at the start of this series. And the question is this, do do our lives evidence, do our lives show that we have the indwelling Spirit of Christ in our lives? Jesus says, by By your fruit you shall know them. By their fruit. By the marks of grace in their lives. By the virtue of their character as they are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but when I reflect upon the fruit of the Spirit and and my own heart and life, the first thing I want to do is to cry out to God. And say, oh Lord, how unlike the Lord Jesus I remain. But the the, the deepest desire of my heart, with all of my heart, I want to be more like him. My friends, that is the Christian life. Trusting in the Lord Jesus, relying on the spirit of Christ, and striving with every fiber of our being to be like him. To learn to think like him, to speak like him, to act like him for the glory of God the Father. And so may God, the Holy Spirit, take take hold of each one of our lives as we trust in Jesus and mold us and shape us and transform us that we might reflect more and more of the moral glory of our elder brother Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your Son is the firstborn among many brethren, and you have decreed to repopulate the moral glory of Jesus Christ by producing Jesus' likeness in the lives of your sons and daughters. And so we plead now that you would fulfill your word and keep that promise in our midst, in our lives, in order that congregationally and individually we might reflect our Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of his saving grace. We pray this in his name. Amen.